Welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast, a guide for those interested in hearing more about hunting, fishing, and other paths to eating more responsibly. Now, here's your host, Mark Norquist. Hey, everyone, and welcome to this new episode of the Modern Carnivore Podcast. Today's discussion is with Mark Schwabenlander and Tiffany Wolf, and they are both with MinPro, which is the Minnesota Center for Prion Research and Outreach, which is a mouthful. But basically what we're talking about today is chronic wasting disease, which you may or may not be familiar with. If you've been in hunting circles for a while, you're probably familiar with this topic. If you're new to hunting, it might be something new. And it's a very... It's a very serious issue, uh, but by the same token, I want to make sure that you don't get too overly concerned about it because, uh, as they say, uh, Mark and Tiffany at, at the very end of this podcast, uh, make sure that yeah, you keep on hunting. But it is this is chronic wasting disease is a serious issue, and it's a disease that is. Uh, is found in ungulates, which are deer and uh, and and other species that are very common to hunt. And about ten days ago, the organization they're part of, MinPro, uh, put out a press release, and the the press release talked about this exciting milestone they had hit in the creation of a field deployable CWD test. And if you're familiar with this, you know, what's been happening in recent years is when hunters uh, harvest a deer, they kill a deer in, in an area where CWT is known to exist, at least here in Minnesota, uh, they're required oftentimes to remove lymph nodes and send them into a lab to get it tested to find out if the deer has the disease or not. Now, well, this disease has not been found to infect humans. It is not recommended to eat venison from a deer that has chronic wasting disease. And for that reason, if you did kill a deer and found out it had CWD, you would have to throw away all of that meat, which obviously is not cool. And so what's really exciting about the work that Mark Tiffany and the rest of the team at MinPro and Minnesota DNR and the University of Minnesota have been doing is they've created something called, they're calling right now MinQuick. And MinQuick is a field deployable test that right now they're able to get results on within nine hours, uh, as opposed to most tests nowadays have to be sent to a lab generally across the country, and you might not get the results for two to three weeks. And they're saying the technology they're using is more cost-effective. How it actually works is they're actually able to generate the results in the form of a color change on this test. And, and they're, they're a little bit elusive because they said they've got some you know intellectual property here that they have to be careful on. But um, it basically, the test will result in blue if the, there's no CWD present and red if, uh, if there is CWD present. So what's exciting is, in essence, this preliminary research is finding that these tests can be faster, nine hours versus two to three weeks, closer, deployable out in the field, and using technology that is actually cheaper or more cost-effective. So 
Well, we're probably a ways off from hunters carrying their own test out in the field that they can use with a deer. Uh, that's sort of the direction this is he heading. And so I find it really excited. And I'm sure that uh, that you'll enjoy hearing this conversation. And I'd just like to, to say, make sure you continue to support or learn more about the work that these guys are doing and, and others in these in these uh, fields and uh, it's really important to the future of hunting so here we go with mark and tiffany hello everyone uh, today i am joined by a couple people here from the university of minnesota college of veterinary medicine and uh we have a really exciting conversation in store here because the work uh, this group has been doing uh, is really cutting edge. And I think it's something that anyone who does hunt, uh, anyone who hunts deer would uh, be very interested in it. So I'll, uh, I'll let, them, uh, let them introduce themselves. Why don't we start with you, Tiffany? Uh, hi, I'm Tiffany Wolf. I'm a faculty member in the College of Veterinary Medicine, and my background is in wildlife epidemiology. Um, so, uh, veterinarian first and foremost in the in the zoo and wildlife field, and um, decided uh, to leave the clinical world to do more research on wildlife health. and um, And so, I've been at the University of Minnesota since 2015. Uh, doing just that right here in Minnesota. Great. Well, uh, happy to have you here today. And, and Mark. Hi, I'm Mark Schwabenlander. And my current role is with the Minnesota Center for Prion Research and Outreach, otherwise known as MinPro. That's a pretty newly formed prion research center in the College of Vet Med. Um, my role there is the CWD Research and Outreach project manager. And so it just really means I have my hands in all of the field and lab research and outreach that we do. Uh, I've been at the university since 2003. Most of my time here has been in the veterinary diagnostic lab. So I have a history of veterinary diagnostics, post-mortem investigation. And um, previous to that, I was trained in wildlife biology. Um, so I kind of have this interface of wildlife biology, always had an interest in wildlife, uh, veterinary medicine, and all those have kind of come together in my role working with CWD. So today, thanks so much, Mark. So today we're going to talk about CWD or chronic wasting disease, uh, but you would just talked about MinPro, so which is the Prion Research and uh, Outreach uh, center or area. And so maybe if you could start by, by explaining what is a prion and, uh, and why is this important? That would, that'd be great. Cause I think those who aren't familiar with chronic wasting disease, uh, I think this is some, some good foundational aspect on it. Yeah, I, th I think I'll, I'll take that. And I think it's, I think that's maybe one of the hardest things to understand when it comes to chronic wasting disease is what is this prion that we always talk about. And I'll, I'll start out by saying that all mammals have prions. So it's a normal protein that we have in our bodies. Humans have it, deer have it, other mammals have it. And it, it's uh, part of normal cellular function. Um, 
the understanding of what it really does is not clear, but we know that it helps facilitate metals um, and transferring of metals throughout the body. And they're really enriched in nervous tissue in the brain and in, in the nerves. And so there's a normal prion in all of these deer. Um, when it becomes a problem, it's still called a prion, which makes it confusing, but it's misfolded. So it's the same structure, um, same composite, but the shape has changed. And, and that is when they become infectious. And so chronic wasting de disease is this misshapen prion. Uh, and I believe it causes basically holes in the, in the brain of the, of the ungulate. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, essentially when um, it, the holes are, are actually what we see or observe microscopically. Um, so I think when, when people think about holes, they think, they think, you know, a brain that suddenly looks dappled and um, no longer normal, but this is, this is um, holes in the, in the cellular architecture. So it's what we see, like I said, under the microscope. Um, and, and it's those changes um, that are, microscopic that then um, manifest over time to become clinical signs of um, wasting or thin body condition. It uh, may be alterations in behavior. Um, deer may not respond to environmental cues in the same way that they um, would normally respond. Um, and, and so, uh, but, but it's not necessarily something that we see, like, <clears throat> uh, if we opened up the brain, um, and looked at it grossly, if we look directly at the brain without the use of the microscope, that's not necessarily, um, something that would be immediately obvious. Right. So how did we first discover this, this disease, um, you know, where, where, where did the discovery happen and, and, and how, how did it happen? Yeah, it's first recognized in uh, the late sixties in Colorado in penned deer in research pens. And I think at that point they, they saw this clinical wasting of these animals. Um, they saw that disease progression to death and really didn't know what it was um, until in the seventies um, in the early 80s is when it was really understood that this was part of the transmissible spongiform encephalopathies or TSEs, that family of prion diseases that includes scrapie in sheep and mad cow disease in bovines. Um, and so it, it was first recognized, you know, in that in those penned animals and then later found in wild animals around the same area, but it took uh, a decade or two before we really understood that this was a prion disease. And while we talk about white-tailed deer a lot, this is um, a, a disease that, that all cervids are susceptible to, correct? And maybe just talk a little bit about what, what, uh, what, what animals are, are susceptible to this. Well, specifically with chronic wasting disease, um, when we're talking about cervids, it's it's animals like white-tailed deer, mule deer, elk, moose, 
um, red deer, reindeer. Um, so all of those that belong um, taxonomically speaking in in this cervid family, all of the the deer cousins, if you will. Gotcha. And and so. You know, it's discovered in the late 60s, 70s, 80s, and, and, and up till today, we continue to learn more and more. What do we know about how this how this is is transmitted? What are the what are the pathways to to the spreading of, of this disease? Yeah, you know, I mean, broadly there's really two ways. Uh, direct transmission and indirect transmission, which really means direct transmission is that deer to deer contact. So when deer are coming in contact with each other, deer are very social animals. We see doe groups, we see bucks moving around breeding. Um, I guess whether it's bucks or bulls with elks, they're moving around and interacting with different deer. So it's that nose to nose contact. Um, It's that direct animal to animal contact. And then the other way is indirect contact. And we talked about how this disease progresses to death and causes those holes in, in the brain. But that's a 18-month to two-year progress from the time they're infected to the time that they would die from this disease. And almost that whole time, they are shedding those prions in their saliva, in their urine, in their feces. And so there's an indirect method too, where those prions are in the environment and in those feces, in that urine. Um, So those animals can pick it up indirectly. So it goes from the animal to the environment and back to another animal. And this is why um, when when it is discovered, let's say in in captive cervid farms, they really need to, those those spots need to be, you know, they're oftentimes kept uh, coordinated off for lack of a better term, uh, for, for a significant amount of time, because we don't really know how long those prions stay active in the environment, do we? There's some information that we have from other prion diseases. Um, so chronic wasting disease is one of a family of prion diseases. Um, others are, uh, like bovine spongiform encephalopathy, or scrapie. Um, and scrapie affects sheep. It's been around for hundreds of years. Um, and I think that's a prion disease in animals that we probably have the best knowledge of um, because of its longevity um, in that livestock species. And, you know, what we know of scrapie is it can survive in the environment, um, in soil, in dust uh, for decades. Um, so you can, you can, um, clear a pen where there's been a scrapie infected animal, um, and that can lie fallow or, or, um, without animals for many, many years. And then, um, putting animals back on that contaminated or in that contaminated environment can result in new infections. We just don't have as much information when it comes to chronic wasting disease. I mean, there's been studies gotcha. where they've looked at two, three, five years um, post animals being taken off of the landscape and putting new animals on. And so we know it lasts you know, that long, 
But if we infer based off of what Tiffany is talking with Scrapey, we know it's probably much longer than that two, three or five years. Right, right. So the so the current state of things, um, if if we look at if we look at um, you know here in the U.S. and in North America, um, what what is the current state of of chronic wasting disease in terms of where it's been found? Uh, has it been found? I, I, I believe the last count I heard was twenty three, twenty four known states, but. Um, where is it found and, and where are the hot spots uh, relative to it? Yeah, I, th- I think right now we know it's been found in 26 states, and this is captive and uh, wild deer um, across those 26 states. And yeah, that continues to grow every, every year. Um, new counties and new states, unfortunately, we're finding it in. And the USGS has is a really good map on online that shows that, and they, Brian Richard runs that, and he, he keeps that up to date. I think at a monthly basis, pretty much. Um, so that's a really good resource to see where chronic wasting disease is at. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, <clears throat> so if we look at you know places like uh, you know here here in Minnesota, and we'll get to the exciting news here in a minute of uh, of the work that you two and the, and the rest of the group are doing. But um, if we look in Minnesota, we've got regions that are that are sort of hotspots: Southeast Minnesota, uh, uh, which is close to Wisconsin. Wisconsin, I believe they've found they've found CWD in every county of Wisconsin. Is that correct? I don't think it's been every county, but upwards of seventy-five percent of them. Got you. So the so the majority of the counties here in Minnesota, a little bit of a different situation. Uh, we we've we've got different areas where it has been found. We do a lot of a lot of studying, a lot of uh, taking of samples in recent years, and, and places where we know it does exist to see if there is spread. Um, but um, you know, the one thing I do want to I do want to make sure uh, people know, and maybe we talk about this for a moment, is this disease results in in the deer as as you mentioned, Tiffany. The the visible signs are the wasting of the animal. It just really looks unhealthy. Maybe talk about that for for a moment. And also, I want to make sure people know this is a very serious issue, but there is not any confirmed case that's ever been made of of a human, of the transmission going to a human, correct? Yeah, that, that we know of, um, you know, and that's a, that's a really hard, um, hard one to tease out, um, and, and really, uh, establish that, um, that transmission has taken place. Um, like Mark said early on, this disease takes a very, very long time to manifest. Um, we have seen um, there is a variant form of Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which is a human prion disease that um, occurs from through the consumption of of meat um, that is from infected cattle <clears throat> with bovine spongiform encephalopathy. So, you know, we look to that um, as at least a precedence. Um, for a prion disease crossing the species barrier to infect humans and, and that process 
takes many, many years um, to manifest in humans. Um, but we just don't, we, we don't know if that's ever happened in humans. And we don't know um, if it happens, what that disease would necessarily look like, how it would manifest in humans. Um, going back to what we know about deer and what that looks like. Uh, yes, absolutely. Like you were saying, um, and, and like the name says, um, the predominant sign of this disease in deer is wasting. They are skinny. They looked unkempt. Um, like I was mentioning before, their behavior changes. Um, they look sick. But and, and oftentimes, you know, when we talk about this and give presentations about this, we'll show a picture of, of deer that um, are in these advanced stages of CWD and are very, very clearly unhealthy deer. But I could also show a picture of a very healthy deer that is also infected with CWD. Like Mark said, this process can take 18 or plus months after an animal has become infected before it ever looks sick. And so, um, you know, I put both of those pictures together when I, you know, would move forward in talking about this is what a deer with CWD looks like. They look healthy, but they can also look very, very sick. Hey, this is Mark, and I just want to quickly thank you for listening to the podcast and also tell you about one of our partners, Sitka Salmon Shares. This company is like a vegetable CSA, except for it's completely focused on wild-caught Alaskan fish. So here's how it works. You pre-order your share of the harvest for the upcoming fishing season, which is April to December, and then this determines how much they're going to target in their catch for the season. Result is each month you'll get your share of the catch delivered right to your doorstep. This is about four and a half to five pounds of fish. So here's what I love about this company. These are real independent small boat family fishermen. Check out their stories and videos on their website. You know, it's, it's not a multinational corporation with staff who are on a factory boat processing the fish. These are small boat fishermen. And they're focused on responsibly catching these fish, both from the methods they use, which nearly eliminate bycatch, to targeting the right species at the right time so that they can sustainably manage the fishery up there. And the result is some of the best quality fish you could get anywhere. So go to sitkasalmonshares.com and use the code modcarn25 on checkout and you'll get $25 off your premium share for the upcoming fishing season. Again, just enter modcarn25 on checkout at sitkasalmonshares.com. Well, and I think the, that's that's why the work that the two of you and the rest of the team at MinPro, uh, it's it's so important. 
uh, and, and so timely in terms of where we're at. Um, one of your colleagues, uh, Mike Olsterholm, who I believe is also part of the MinPro team, correct, is someone that many people may have, have seen or heard in recent months uh, as he's uh, been on a lot of the, the national discussion uh, and with the White House on, on COVID. And, um, and so I think, you know, it's it's a good example and reminder to people of of these these diseases can jump the 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 boundary the the human the barrier into into humans and and we need to we need to do everything we can to to keep these at bay and so to to that end um mark you talked about both direct and indirect transmission so uh what what do you find when we have situations like here in Minnesota, I think is a really interesting sort of, if you will, laboratory of what's going on and currently in CWD of we've got a very high density of infection rate in Southeast Minnesota. Um, and then in 2019, we suddenly saw uh, Crow Wing County over 300 miles away. We see an infection there. Um, now, just in the last few months, uh, maybe three, four weeks ago, we see in Beltrami County, uh, another, another infection rate. So what does the science tell us about the, the spread in those situations? I, you know, I think overall, it's really difficult. Um, this disease, the, the, the difficulty and in the things we've talked about already is that environmental contamination that that's one aspect that makes it difficult. You know, those prions can be spread not just from an animal, um, but, you know, it, it could be shared equipment or um, potentially food moving from one place to another. Um, the animal itself is, is difficult, too. In the, the farm situation, they're moving what looks to be completely healthy animals. Um, one of the problems is our current testing methods really is only good at our, our current validated testing methods that are used is, is really good at detecting disease in late stage or close to that late stage. Um, but there could be a deer that is infected or has been recently infected. And the, the way that our current regulations and testing is set up, it doesn't really allow to be able to know that that deer is infected. So there's, there's difficulty in really being able to slow that spread because we as humans, we, we like to we like to move deer, whether it's establishing new elk populations in areas to hunt or whether it's um, farmers selling deer and, and moving them from one place to another. Um, so, yeah, that's that's uh, that makes it really difficult with this disease to manage. And so I, I uh, my heart goes out to those managers and those regulators who are, are trying to get ahead of the disease. And that's, you know, one of our goals is to help get ahead of that through one, through education. So people understand the disease and two, through improving diagnostic testing. But you could say from a, from a scientific perspective, again, movement of animals for whatever reason is got to be a primary vector and, 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 transmission pathway is that is that a fair fair statement i would say that's fair i mean whether whether it's moving live animals or whether it's uh moving carcasses you know if it's a hunter hunting 
in Wyoming and bringing that positive carcass back to Minnesota and depositing on the landscape. And so they are that I would, I would say overall us humans are the ones who have spread it greatly because we are moving animals, whether they're dead or alive. So, so that's a great transition to the, to the next topic then, which is the work that, that you two have been doing that is so exciting. And so this is, I've got the press release in front of me from uh, just uh, maybe a week and a half ago. Um, saying that University of Minnesota researchers develop novel field deployable test for CWD. So, Mark, you just talked about, um, you know, one, uh, I think a, a great example of movement, of moving a, a carcass of a, of a dead animal. You know, I head out west and I go shoot a, shoot a mule deer. I shoot an elk. How do I, how do I know that this animal is infected, infected and I'm potentially transferring this animal across the country, which obviously I think anybody would, would, uh, uh, it's just a, a horrible thought that, 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 that you could be part of that. So if you can, maybe Tiffany, if you could start by telling me a little bit about what are, what is the current testing process Maybe just that we do here in Minnesota, or what's the generally accepted process for testing an animal for CWD today? Yeah, uh, right now, um, most of uh, just about all of our testing is done on um, dead animals, um, generally harvested, hunter harvested animals um, uh, are probably. Um, at least in Minnesota, um, the one of the predominant um, forms of or samples from which we get tests uh, or have testing done. So <clears throat> the testing is really relies on sampling of lymph nodes that are are pulled from the head, um, and then those are sent to diagnostic laboratories. And there's there's a few diagnostic laboratories around the country that are doing this test. One of the the labs that um, has been used in um, uh, for samples coming from Minnesota, for example, they go to Colorado State University, and Colorado performs a screening test uh, called an ELISA. Um, where they're trying to detect the, the prion in the lymph node tissues. Um, and then if that is positive, then they'll use another test to confirm that. And it's called an immunohistochemistry test. Um, and those, both of those tests have been well validated um, for screening this disease. And like Mark said, um, they're really considered... Uh, the gold standard when it comes to screening, particularly animals that are in advanced stages of disease. Um, some of the limitations that we are aware of with these tests is they, it's very possible that they could miss animals that are in very early stages of infection. So animals that don't have a lot of this ab abnormal prion in those tissues. But um, but that's primarily the approach. Hunter harvested animals um, after their after uh, hunters um, get their harvest, they'll bring uh, the head or, or the the deer to a hunter registration station, where um, often there will be uh, DNR staff available to 
pull tissues or remove the head and pull the tissues. And then, um, and then those samples are routed to the lab. That whole process right now, because um, there's so much testing done by a few labs during this um, window of time being the hunting season, um, that can take upwards of two to three weeks from the time a hunter uh, shoots his deer, her deer, to the time they get their results. So there's a delay. We have confidence in the tests being used today, but there's that delay. So Mark, what, um, and, and, and I know that this is something, especially like you're talking about South, Southeast Minnesota, it's, it's a complicating factor. And that's why I'm, you know, as a hunter, and I think the hunting community, uh, there are many concerns on many levels, not least of which is we want to be responsible about it, but how do you, how do you manage that, that delay, et cetera. And so maybe if you could talk a little bit about Mark, about what you, what, what is the the work you've been doing as of late and, and why is the test that you all have been working on? Why is it novel and what's, what's unique about it? Yeah. I'll, I'll say that overall we've been working on and we, we were um, provided money from the state a couple of years ago to work on this project to advance diagnostics for CWD. How can, how can we make a better test? Um, so it's, you know, what can we do that's above and beyond the current testing that Tiffany just described? And, you know, I think ultimately everybody's end goal is that if a hunter wanted it, they could have a test in their hand and they could test their deer on site. And I, I agree. I still think that is an end goal. We're taking steps to get there. And this, this first um, step, this first discovery that we made in that press release that you're talking about, we, we called MinQuick. And um, it's exciting for a number of reasons. One is that we were able to do this at a DNR, DNR field site. And so the equipment is small enough and relatively cheap enough, um, cheaper than current testing platforms, that it can be done on site. Um, and with the same or close to the same sensitivity or, or limited detection as current testing. And so one, it, it provides that platform or that next step to how do we get closer? How does a testing get closer to the animal? And that's one of the exciting pieces of it. Another exciting piece of that is that the process incorporates this nanoparticle that causes a color change when there's a positive. And so it, when it's positive, it's red. And when it's negative, it's blue. And so that, you know, in of it itself with this test is exciting because that also sets the stage for further developments. Um, but it's easy. It's an easy thing to see. You don't have to run it through a machine and get a reading. Um, you can see that that change. And so this uh, release and, and this information that we've discovered in, in the last year or so um, is an exciting in it of itself but also sets the stage for further test development. This is currently one of four different avenues of advanced diagnostics that we're working on, and all of them have legs. Um, there's a lot of uh, PI or IP, sorry, uh, informational um, stuff that we have to protect 
right now, so I can't get into a lot of those details. But the bottom line is we, we are making advances in the laboratory to get to a final goal um, that continually Im uh, improves that diagnostic testing. And we're not the only lab. There's other labs across the, the state and across North America that are working on things too. So the diagnostic community is working on advanced prion detection. So can you share, and if you, and if you can't share you know, things that ask questions on, please do just say, say so. Um, but, um, does the, does this test rely upon, uh, the lymph nodes the same way that the current testing process does is, is, is the need to, to extract the lymph nodes, how, how the test works? Yes, currently. And that's, that's a starting point. So we know the lymph node works with the current testing. That's our next step when we're, um, looking at advanced advanced diagnostics. So you just keep taking those steps, but we're also working on samples like blood. Um, so it's, you know, we first take that step of this sample works with the known test. Let's say use that same sample to develop the next test and then start working in the lab to be able to use other types of samples like blood. Right. Okay. And what I think I'm hearing you say, which to me is the the really exciting part, is, I mean, where you're headed with this, I envision the potential of someday, who knows when, and, and maybe maybe I'm wrong, and and maybe you can give me even more of positive news, but um, where the opportunity would be for a hunter to have a little test kit on their person with them test a deer in the field, take a look, and it's going to be blue, you're good, red, ah, we got a problem. You need to you need to leave this deer here and we need to figure out wh whatever way to, to deal with it. I mean, is that is that correct in terms of the vision or what you see as, as the potential future of this? I'd say yes, that's the hope. Um, I'm not saying that's in our pocket right now, that might be five years from now, that might be 10 years from now. Um, but what we're seeing in the lab is that we are continually making advancements to get to that point. We haven't, we haven't hit a roadblock yet um, in these four avenues. And each of them is a little bit different, but they also can come together um, to make a better end product. Okay. Wonderful. That's so what, I mean, what do you think is, is a timeline for something like this? And I know that's a, that's a bit of a loaded question, but Tiffany, as you think about um, the advances you've been making on, on this, I mean, this is, this is the first of its kind, right? There is not, there, nobody else in the, in the field of CWD research has ever come up with something that appears to be a field deployable test to, to confirm presence of CWD. Is that, is that accurate? Um, that's accurate to our knowledge. Um, and I really want to uh, give a shout out to the entire MinPro lab um, that's been thinking about this and working on this led by Peter Larson. Um, it's really been a multidisciplinary effort um, that I think 
has really um, contributed to a lot of out of the box thinking. Um, and, and it's really been amazing to see how far that, that creativity has gone in just a short time. Um, it's hard to say, um, how quickly things, uh, will progress, um, from here, but continuing to move forward at this pace, um, you know, we may be looking at, um, uh, better testing and more, that's more widely available within a decade. Now there's a lot, having said that, there's a lot still of research that has to go behind that. Um, as an epidemiologist, I'm constantly thinking uh, about, okay, well, we know it works in the lab. Um, we validate it. We know we can actually detect this prion if it's there, but how does it perform in a natural setting when we have no idea what stage of disease any of these deer are in or what the prevalence or, or level of disease is in the population? What's that probability that that test, if it's positive, means that that animal truly has disease? Or if it's negative, that that animal is truly negative. So those are the things that I'm often thinking about and that part, you know, validating how that test performs in, in a natural population, in a natural setting, that's going to be an ongoing process, um, even after it's, after it's deployed uh, and the laboratory work is done, um, just continuing evaluating how well it's, it's performing. Right. But it really is, you know, the, the opportunities the opportunities are yeah, exciting. Absolutely, and so th that that does tie in, I guess, uh, in my question of the current confidence in in the test and where you're at. Because I believe I, I recall, is it have you done? It was it was a, a like the numbers around a hundred tests that you you deployed, and uh, and with good accuracy. But what is the confidence today, and and what are the next steps that you that you're going to take to continue to to have more confidence in the in the effectiveness of of this test, Mark. Yeah, you're you're right. We've we've run at this point now hundreds of uh, or a couple hundred um, tests in the lab with with MinQuick, and it is in line with our current testing. Um, so yes, what the next step is? Well, the next step is seeing what is what is that confidence, and that's part of um, what Tiffany does as an epidemiologist of saying, what is the sensitivity? What is the specificity or how confident are we that these results are what we think they should be? So that, that really is our, is our next step along with looking at other sample types and continuing to, to develop um, these diagnostics. But a big piece is what is our confidence look like? And so, what I'm hearing you say is is not only does this test address the challenges of timing um, because we've got such a long lag time. It, it's I mean, the, as as you're doing the test today, does when you say field deployable, do you need to take it back to a mini lab, if you will, back at a station, or are you physically able to today? 
at that kill site, as an example, do this test without having equipment there? Again, I'm just trying to understand how it works. Where we are today is is this this it would be at a station, um, at a check station. So not 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 as in the field as as you know our hopes and dreams would allow us to go. <laughs> Yet certainly not uh, deer side where they drop, but um, but this would be at a field check station. Gotcha. But still, again, reducing that time frame of getting results, it could be something that's deployable. When you say to the field, we could have, you could have in any specific hunt region area where the season is going on, potentially check-in stations or what have you. And rather than having to send it across the country to a lab and wait weeks. Um, you also mentioned that it's, that it's, more cost effective, which I think is fascinating because that was one of the questions I had when I first heard about this is, you know, that's, it sounds wonderful, but is this not a, is this using technologies and or processes that are so cost prohibitive that the practicality of, of rolling something out isn't there? Yes. I would say that the, the technologies are, are more cost friendly. The logistics of having them at stations across the state. Those are things that we're working with the DNR. And I'll, I'll say that our, our collaborations with the DNR have been great and to figure out these things. If there is a field station where we're testing those um, samples, it's gonna take more effort from the DNR. It's gonna take people on site to be able to collect and test those samples. So the true numbers, I don't think we have yet, the cost numbers, but we know that the equipment itself is um, cheaper than the current equipment. Great. That's that's really exciting. You know, and, and you touched on a little bit ago the the multidisciplinary aspect of it. And as a uh, as a, as a Minnesotan who's proud of our our conservation and funding heritage with a lot of things in the outdoors. Maybe just a quick shout out. I believe I saw in the press release, you know, part of the funding for this came from the Minnesota Environmental and Natural Resources Trust Fund, correct? So, I mean, you had to pull from a lot of a lot of different funding sources to make that happen. And, and that's really the essence of, of how this can happen, right? Is, is everybody coming together? Yeah, um, the state uh, with our Environmental Natural Resources Trust Fund has really been a huge um, supporter of this work, um, and and so I can't say enough about how much that support um, has really helped to launch this endeavor um, and continues um, to to allow us to do this really important work. Um, you know, the essence of MinPro, um, and the intent behind it was to, is to bring together scientists and other experts, um, or, or people with different backgrounds together to think creatively about this problem. Um, and to think, you know, how do we, you know, we've got, We've got a, a, a traditional approach. We've got a standard approach that we've been using for many, many years now um, to try and um, conduct surveillance around CWD and manage the disease. Um, but if we want to push the envelope, 
we need to think, um, we need to bring more people together, more expertise, uh, more diversity in, in thinking. And, and that's really, um, that's been really what's been behind a lot of the new advances that have been made in MinPro. Both, I would say, both on, on the, in the development of diagnostic testing, as well as in the outreach that we've been conducting around the state. Well, this is I, this is so exciting. Uh, when I saw the saw the uh, the press release, I just I said I I have to get get you guys on to talk about this because it is something that I think is is on the minds of of hunters a lot. Um, I look at it as something that that if if we don't address it, it it, it creates the potential for people to be fearful of of starting to hunt and things like that. So I think it's important for us to have clarity around understanding the disease, to have insights on when and where it's occurring, and make sure that we can manage it. And and I think you two and the rest of the MinPro team are on the forefront of that. And so I just I can't thank you enough for all your hard work on behalf of the of the hunting community. And uh, I look forward to having you on the podcast again when we hit uh, hit some other stages of success to talk about what's happening and and uh, and the successes that I'm sure you're going to have. So uh, I appreciate all you're doing, both of you. Thanks, Mark. We appreciate Thanks, it, Mark. and uh, we always end our messages to hunters to just keep hunting. Yep. Yep, we're doing what we're doing because we want to support the hunters out there um, and and their activities. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And we appreciate all that you do. And uh, again, we'll keep everybody posted on, on other updates in the future. Thanks for listening to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. You can continue the journey by going to modcarn.com.